Hey everybody, happy 2018, and welcome back to another episode of the Blister Podcast. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and as always, you can go online and check out what we're up to at blisterreview.com. Today on the podcast, we're going to learn how a kid from New York ended up living in Austria and becoming a global product manager at one of the largest ski and boot manufacturers in the world. And we'll also find out why he believes this studying philosophy in college and in grad school turned out to be the ideal preparation for his day-to-day responsibilities. We're talking to Matt Manzer about his background, his studies in philosophy, his experience as a boot fitter, and the design decisions that go into the creation of every ski boot, including the current Atomic Hawks Ultra and Hawks Ultra XTD. Matt and I cover a lot of topics, so if you want to dip in and out of our conversation, just check the show notes on the website or on your phone to see a list of the topics and times. Also, if you'd like to ask Matt a question or give him some feedback, you can hit him up on Instagram at one nerdy kid. And if Matt isn't too busy playing video games or reading Aristotle or something, you will probably get a reply back from him pretty quickly. And now, since it is almost 4 a.m. and I'd really like to get at least a few hours of sleep, let's just get right to my conversation with Atomic's boot guy, Matt Manzer. Matt Manzer, how are you? I am well, Jonathan. Thank you for having me on board. Yeah, man. Uh, And where are you today? Today? uh, Well, always right now. I live in Austria. Um... A little town called Sankt Johan. It's about 20 minutes away from the Atomic uh, Ski Factory in Altenmarkt. How long have you been spending a good amount of time in Austria for? Uh, I took the job here seven years ago. And I moved here from, from Vermont. Um, so I've been here, I've been stationed here for seven years now. Stationed here? That You yeah. realize that really... <laughs> That really makes it sound like you're in the military. <laughs> I didn't mean to. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, okay, so you, you have a job in Austria, um, and I believe you work for a, a little company called Atomic. Little little boot brand. Mm-hmm. Occasionally I make skis too. Mm-hmm. Um, Atomic, is this right that Atomic is making more skis than anyone, or is at least one of the... That is correct. Okay. We are... Oh. By the most current accounts, we produce the most skis of any single factory kind of thing. Okay. Any one brand. Usually it's between like us and Razi are like flip a coin one day, it's Razi or it's us. But okay. typically the last year or two, I think we've taken the lead on that. Okay. Um, and, and in terms of manufacturing numbers of boots, quantities of boots, you guys are r- right up at near the top two, correct? We are number two. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so what then is your particular title at Atomic? So my official title is I am the product manager of Alpine and Touring Boots. Okay. So everything ski boot related, I am involved in. Okay. And has that been your title for the entire stint that you've been in stationed in Austria? Since my station has begun, yeah, uh, yeah, okay. pretty much, uh, yeah, I came over here for that exact job. Okay. Um, well, given that you're, you don't have a very strong accent, 
or at least not a strong, you know, Austrian accent, I would say. I think this is a backstory that we should probably talk a bit about. Um, okay. And uh, so let's do that. Um, where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, central New York, a really small town called Oneida, hmm. pretty much like a half hour from Syracuse. And yeah, I grew up there, started skiing when I was, I think, two or three. My parents were super big skiers. Hmm. And if any of your viewers are from that area, like they grew up skiing like Toggenberg or Snow Ridge, that, those are my old stomping grounds as a kid. Okay. So you weren't really given the option. You were going to like skiing as well. I don't know if you're going to like skiing, but you were going skiing as a little kid. Well, my parents, they let me do like whatever sport I wanted to. And we started doing the typical ball sports and I, I did it, but I wasn't really into them. And as soon as I got exposed to skiing, I was like, wow, that's really cool. Hmm. And that was like my main way to stay sane in the winters mm -hmm. was skiing. And every weekend my parents would load the car up and we'd go somewhere and just ski the whole day. So what else were you into? I mean, so we're talking when you're like three, four, five, six years old at this point, this is what we're talking about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I so, thought like every, I thought this was just normal. I thought everybody <laughs> skied, you know, because like, oh, we're going skiing. There's tons of people at the mountain. I'm like, yeah, here we are. And uh, yeah, it wasn't until like probably 10 or so that I realized that I'm, <laughs> there's not as many skiers as I thought there were. Hmm. hmm. So what else? You you didn't take to the like team sports thing, I guess, as a kid. What else were you into as a, you know, I don't know, grade school, high school? Um, or were you just like, it was only video games and skiing? Well, video games were definitely a big part of that. <laughs> See, I, could, I just guessed. <laughs> I could tell. When in, when in doubt, you're not playing ball sports, you must be playing video games. Right. Um but biking as well, like BMX, mm -hmm. um, was a huge part of my life in the summertime. And I would say if I wasn't skiing, I was biking mm -hmm. for sure. Those are my two. And it's probably, that's true today, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and I still have a BMX bike in my quiver. Okay. To this day. And, and so that really was like from a long, for, as a young kid, you discovered skiing and you discovered bikes and then you just stuck yep. with those things. On up yeah, through high school? I, like I played baseball um, like through middle school and into high school. And then like, you know, like when puberty hits and you start getting bigger and then you're also realizing you're not as big as like the guys who should be playing baseball. <laughs> uh -huh. You're like, oh, this is probably time to step out and not to deal with that yeah. nonsense anymore for me. Yeah. Did you ever start moving into the world of like competitive skiing or racing or moguls or slope style stuff? Or were you just like, dude, I just like skiing. Um, I did race for a little bit. I was terrible. <laughs> I actually, I think I was part of one year, um, this really small resort called Woods Valley. And I was on the race team there. And it was this really fun season where I think I DNF'd every race. <laughs> Like I would just blow through turns like way too fast and just explode. Okay. So I liked going fast. 
I just never really wanted to go where I guess all the turns were. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So did you continue as a skier? I mean, is the the style growing up? Was it a let's go fast and straight? Or oh yeah, like I, I grew up on all the stump videos. So anything yep. made by the Stone Brothers, I was so into. I think I I burned through two VHS copies of Blizzard of Oz uh-huh. as a kid, just watching that like all day. So Schmidt and Plake were my childhood heroes, and just yeah, growing up in the wrong part of the world for <laughs> to yeah. emulate that. Is, but I think almost every East Coast skier has this little weird part of their skiing experience where they wanted to turn everything into like a big mountain event. Mm-hmm. So they, they look at the mountain in like this little, in a different way where nobody else would see this like little jump or a little tree shot, but you had to seek it out. Cause that was the one cool thing mm-hmm. <laughs> at the little resort you were at. So you make it through high school and then I'm assuming nothing interesting whatsoever happened through all of high school. Just you, just a kid on his BMX bike and going fast at the local ski hill. Uh, <laughs> Pretty much, that sums it up right okay. there. <laughs> Perfect. So then you make a decision, I presume, to go to college. Yeah. Okay. And um, what was that about? Where'd you go? What were you studying? Why did you study that? I, you know, I had no idea what to do in leaving high school, and. I really just thought, well, college is next. That's what everybody else is doing. Let's do that. And I was like, I love skiing. Can I ski at college? And they're like, no, you're not good enough. I'm like, okay, that's probably true. Um, And I actually didn't ski through most of, through college. Mm -hmm. And I would come home like in Christmas break and I would go skiing with my friends back home, but I wouldn't actually ski while at, at college. Mm -hmm. And um, to answer your question, I went to Siena College. Okay. Uh, just outside of Albany, New York. And I loved reading and I loved writing. And I thought that I wanted to be a writer of some fashion, like not really knowing what else was out there. And the more I started to get into classes, the more I realized that uh, writing is really fun, but there's this aspect that I was missing. And it was kind of this really critical thinking aspect of my brain that wasn't really turned on at that point. And there was this class that every freshman had to take. I think it was called foundations or something like that. And it's the, it was this one curriculum that was always the same, but they had different professors teaching it. So like not every class, but like, so my semester was taught by a philosophy professor and that was my first, um, introduction to philosophy and it just blew my mind Hmm. like this guy was um he was a logician and his uh his whole approach to just like destroying people's arguments i was just like that's awesome that's like the coolest thing i've seen (laughs) anybody that's like i read this i want to do this this is a cool idea no that's this is what i want to do he's like nope bullshit you're horrible (laughs) Hmm. and he just tore through all these arguments and i was like wow that is just amazing. And so I actually changed from being an English major to a philosophy major Hmm. and ended up getting a bachelor's of arts in philosophy. So the first thing I want to ask is backing up. I mean, you said, you know, we were joking about high school, like nothing happened, but 
was the interest in reading and writing, I mean, was that strong growing up? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that did I didn't, happen. I didn't have you like a ton of friends growing up. I mean, for okay. sure I had friends, but I would totally just like escape through books and yeah, skiing and biking and video games and a lot of reading for sure. Okay. So see, that's what you lied to me. When I asked what you were into, you should have also said books. Cause I, I didn't want to like, you don't want to come out as like a full on nerd, but I guess I have to now. <laughs> okay. So, cause I think this stuff is interesting. And again, I like, you know, it's like, look, we don't, our culture doesn't celebrate things like reading or writing. We don't give a damn. And I think that's kind of fucked up and real bad for like the future. So it's always Agreed. good to talk to people who are like, <clears throat> you know, uh, I think especially have like come into a pretty prominent position in the ski industry. And it's like, yeah, it turns out I like skiing and books and writing, you know, like I think sometimes that's a message that doesn't always get communicated to whether it's kids coming up or just frankly anybody and so um that's that was kind of the secret one of the secret agendas for wanting to talk to you which i will now you know, <laughs> fully fully disclose um and so we won't we won't stay too long on this but it sounds like as a kid i mean I, is it fair to say like you're reading normal kind of i don't know normal kids stuff you weren't sitting around in high school reading you know Wittgenstein because you hadn't heard, you hadn't <laughs> heard yet, of philosophy no. <laughs> yet. Okay, okay. No, I, okay. Um, like a lot of uh, – I'm a huge Tolkien nerd. And if that didn't okay. – if you didn't put that together yet, here it is. Like, mm-hmm. So I, I just grew up reading tons of uh, Lord of the Rings, Hobbit, Chronicles of Narnia, a lot of Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> and um, yeah, that would kind of – that would just turn into – you know, especially in high school, you're reading more, um, just a wide variety of, 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 of things, especially contemporary stuff. And yeah, just started the, the, the light bulb just started to turn on a little bit more, especially as I got into college mm-hmm. and when I started to really be exposed more to philosophy yeah, into ethics, into logic, into political theory. Um, and yeah, I think that just really kind of kickstarted the whole thing. And that's yeah. when I, th- I thought of myself, you know what? this professor had such a profound impact on how I view the world that I'm like, I want to do that too. Yeah. And <clears throat> so I kind of pursued um, what I thought would be a life in philosophy. And so I went off and got my master's in philosophy, focusing on ethics and logic primarily. And it was kind of during my, my master's studies in Boston that I realized that it's a really expensive city and I kind of need a, a job <laughs> in addition to um, the stipends and stuff that I was getting. And so I wanted to like, I, I literally saw a help wanted sign in a ski shop and I was like, you know, I remember skiing, having a lot of fun doing that. could be pretty cool to work in a ski shop. And I literally started out my ski industry career as a shop rat mm-hmm. part-time selling skis, selling boots on the floor. And, uh, that's where it all started. Okay. If you think I'm, if you think we're done talking about philosophy, you're a hundred percent wrong, by the way. So we're, no, no, we're, no, not, we're this, not, I wasn't trying to detour it, okay. but just kind of like linking it together there. <laughs> okay. That's probably good. Keep, keep the audience, keep the audience yeah. around. Why they're at a, uh, a blister podcast. <laughs> there is going to be ski industry talk. I promise you. So at some point but, we uh, might we might get there. So 
I, you know, I, I also have a love of philosophy, but I can't say that I have a love of like academic logic, you know, mm-hmm. like philosophical logic per se. That's not where, that's not the stuff that got me going. And so yep. it sounds like you had a, you know, the the least charitable version of why you liked logic is because it sounded like you like destroying people. Is there, is there any... <laughs> when you're like you're 18 and you have all that like teenage angst and uh, you want to change the world. Uh-huh. I think... And everybody can relate relate to this now. Like you go onto Facebook and it's just this political shitstorm of yeah. just bad ideas. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying either way is, is good or bad, but there's there's definitely a a plague of bad ideas. Yeah. And bad ideas often sound really good. And I think that's that's the problem. And logic, whether it's formal logic like you know, A, if then B kind of stuff or yeah. informal logic, which is dealing with fallacies and realizing mistakes in people's arguments. Yeah. It just helps you weed through things that sound good and are false mm-hmm. versus things that sound good and are true. And that's what really, uh, at least opened the door to me to philosophy was mm-hmm. that, that it wasn't just, who has the louder voice? It was like, no, actually, your argument is just flawed. Yeah. And here's why. And that really appealed to me. It wasn't just opinion at that point. Yeah. And so the this professor you had in this foundations class, that <clears throat> sounds like formal logic was kind of his focus. His, his big th- passion was Aristotle. And okay. if for anybody who may have taken a, a philosophy course may have read some of Aristotle's stuff, um, but he pretty much invented modern logic and was profoundly influential in ethics, political theory, uh, physics, metaphysics, one of the, the all-time great minds uh, that has ever walked this earth. And just kind of realizing um, that you can have a a coherent system of thought that spreads throughout any subject, you know, and approach anything, um, whether it's boot fitting or ski boot design with this kind of systematic, rational deduction thinking, um, it really does help you solve problems Mm -hmm. way more effectively than if you just kind of hope this turns out right kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we will we will move off of this eventually. Here, but <laughs> <laughs> sorry, people, it's just two super philosophy nerds just <laughs> cracking at it here. Well, again, I mean, you again, we were talking previously, and and you were saying that there are you you do get hit up a lot, you know, by by people who are like, man, how did you land this position? How did you get there? And <clears throat> um, and again, so I think that I do think that it is pretty interesting and valuable to sometimes hear about stuff that we just don't are are the ski industry just gets to get real insular right and mm-hmm. and um that's the stuff that and it's like actually no you start talking to people and it turns out that you know the product manager for boots for atomic grew up in new york and then 
happened into a foundations class where a dude started introducing him to logic and that like that's how the world works it's not this like well the first thing you do is move to snowbird and then you just you know build kickers all day with your friends it's like that's one possible version it's by no means frankly the only version or the most common version and um so anyway um i I definitely get hit up by people um who are engineers looking to kind of get into the ski industry somehow shape or form and it's a hundred percent valid way to approach an r&d job obviously Mm -hmm. um but i think people are always surprised when i tell them they're like well what did you do you, what kind of engineering are you in? Is it more chemicals? Is it plastics and stuff? And I'm like, yeah. uh, philosophy. <laughs> but I, as we mentioned also earlier, like I would, if I did not study what I studied, I would be horrible at my job. I'm a firm yeah. believer in that. 100% true. Yeah. And I mean, that's, you know, with, with my background in philosophy, I mean, I, I feel exactly the same way. And so, can you can you say more about that actually then give me the explanation why you think where you are today and what you what your job responsibilities are today why do you think that at least in your case you don't regret the fact that you didn't study engineering and that you did in fact study philosophy <clears throat> sure i mean obviously critical thinking can be found in engineering as well for me it was just mm-hmm. It's just very obvious that if I did something different, I would not be at least the same, obviously, as what I'm doing now. Um, A lot of people are kind of mistaken about what philosophy is. And Mm -hmm. they think it's this kind of wishy-washy, yoga, poetic, crazy ideas about space, which that is one small part of it, that those people are in philosophy. Um, But really, philosophy is just real philosophy in my opinion is there's a a coherent system that is being developed about a subject and it's usually very deductive a to b to c to d and when you are in this kind of rigorous philosophy whether it's the way the mind works the way logic is the way ethics is political science whatever it is it is very systematic and it is very rigorous and you really have to focus on problem solving to a super level of detail. And when you apply that to any subject, you will have a rigorous system within that subject. And one of the things I realized is when I was learning how to, to boot fit and learning with this super guru guy, which we can go into as well. Yeah. Um, a lot of people weren't paying attention to the A to the B to the C to the D. They were just like, okay, we got to try this, we got to try that. It's kind of random. Who knows what this is? It's more art versus science. And I was like, uh, no, it's really, there's a, a deductive cause and effect that's going on here, and we need to pay attention to these cause and effect patterns. And so you end up saying, okay, we have this symptom of whatever's hurting, and we have to solve the symptom. We need to work our way backwards and find the root cause and then go back towards that and i for sure um think my success as a boot fitter however good or bad that was was for sure related to problem solving that i learned through philosophy Hmm. so let's 
All right, you got to tell us more about this boot fitting then. <laughs> so you're 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 a kid doing a master's degree in philosophy at Boston College. Is this right? Yep. Yeah, that's right. And it's your first. This is your first time ever working in a shop, and you you know after however long they start letting you fit boots. Yeah. yeah like I, I started in the summer, so it's yeah. like hiking season and stuff. So they're like, here, go help us sell some hiking boots and, and things like that. Yeah. Like, okay, that's pretty good. And in this shop, which was, um, at the time it was called the wilderness house. Hmm. And there was this boot fitter guy named Gordon Hay, who was an ex world cup boot fitter. Uh, I worked with AJ kit, peekaboo street, and he was also uh, a member of the Jackson Hole air force. So he's a ripping skier. Hmm. And he kind of, taught us how to fit boots and uh, make footbeds and all sorts of stuff. And as I started to, they realized that I was selling a lot more boots and footbeds in the hiking world. They're like, we need to help that help in uh, the ski boot world too. And I was like, sure, whatever. I'm here for a couple of years. So let's, let's do it. And it was interesting to me, especially when I would learn more about um, all the aspects of boot fitting and making footbeds and the stories this guy would tell, you know, about the Jacksonville Air Force and his good buddy Doug Coombs and all this stuff um, it was really interesting to me. And a crazy side story, um, the first pro skier I ever fit was Doug Coombs. Wow. Yeah. Like, I was shaking in my <laughs> pants. Like, like, one of my childhood heroes... Um, who was here because of because uh, of Gordon and uh, getting his boots fit. He just had some new garments and new Technicas, and we were doing footbeds and some shell work for him. And I think it took me at least an hour just to like shape the footbeds. <laughs> I was so nervous yeah. to like not mess it up. And um, but it was it went really well. And he was one of the most genuine, down to earth, nicest dudes that I've ever worked with hmm. it was a super awesome experience so that was i think <clears throat> one of the the turning points of why or how i got into the ski industry that i was i was like okay i'm obviously not good enough to be a pro skier by any stretch of the imagination but it's really enjoyable to work with athletes mm -hmm. and i said you know when i'm finished my master's um i had my phd pretty much all lined up to go down that route and I was like, no, I'll take, take the classic, take a year off and just see what happens. Yeah. And obviously that year off turned into 13 years off at this point. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah. So I just started to do the boot fitting thing. Um, and I moved to Vermont, moved up to Burlington mm -hmm. in the summer of 04 and started to work at this shop called the ski rack. Mm -hmm. And they were looking to really up their game on the boot fitting side of things. And I was like, for sure, let's do this. And I had contacts at matchstick films and other avenues in the ski industry. And so we organized to have all the matchstick athletes come to the shop and I would fit their boots for them. And then we'd kick off the movie tour and I'd work with random X games athletes through that as well, as well as all the meathead guys mm -hmm. um, and ski the East guys um, 
and it was just a really enjoyable way for me to like still be at this point in my head, like at, in the ski industry and yeah. to work with pro athletes and help them do their thing and do it better. And it was in Vermont that I started to, when I work more with these athletes, you also get to see like prototype boots that are coming out and they want feedback on them. And so I would also start to work with these brands telling them what's good and what's bad about their ski boots. Cause a lot of the times, at least to me, it seemed like they really didn't have a whole lot of ideas um, of what a, a ski boot should do. You know, from a boot footage perspective, there were just so many things wrong with ski boots at that time that for sure there were good ski boots, no question. But I was like, we need to do something different. Let's talk to your, your sponsor and see if we can get things tweaked for you or this and that other thing. And that was kind of the, the definite door opener to meeting uh, people at Atomic. Hmm. And my, my current boss, um, his name is Jason Rowe. He's also a North American. He's Canadian, actually. And so he was visiting, doing a, a tour of the U.S., and he was showing off a prototype ski boot at the time. And I was like, oh, well, I have nothing to lose. Let's just tell him everything about this boot that I like and don't like and just see what happens. And I think he kind of appreciated that level of candor. Um, cause it typically when people come show off a new product, that's just like, yeah. you only hear good news and good things. And it's amazing. We can't wait to sell it. And I think it was kind of refreshing for him to die. looked at it so critically and told him, um, how I would change it if I had the ability to do so. Mm -hmm. And a joke kind of just turned into a, a job offer. I was like, you looking for any help over there in Austria? And um, that guy's kind of led to an email, which led to a phone call, which led to meeting at an SIA. And then eventually I, w I went over, um, came over to Austria for a, a job interview. I mean, you didn't immediately get the job of product manager, did you? I did. Wow. Yeah. So I went from, um, at the time at, at Ski Rack, I was the yeah. Alpine buyer and boot fitter. Okay, yeah. And so I went from, from that position to global product manager at Atomic. Dear, dear Lord. <laughs> it was funny. One of my uh, good buddy of mine, uh, Tor uh, Verdonk, yeah. He works at Lang. And yeah. um, obviously when when Lang Rousey was in Williston, Vermont, like right across the street from Burlington, I know Tor pretty well. And I, I told him, like, hey, um, I'm going to take a job with Atomic. And his, this is already um, when they moved to Utah. And Tor was like, yeah, so when are you coming to Utah? I'm like, well, I'm going to Austria. <laughs> and he's like, fuck you. <laughs> what? <laughs> So, like, yep. How old are you when you get that job? Uh, I was twenty-nine. Wow. Yeah. Not and bad. By the time I, but by the time I moved over, I had turned thirty. So when I when I'd actually uh, arrived in Austria, I was thirty. I gotta say, what's your boss, Joe? What's his name, Joe? Jason Rowe. Jason Rowe. Jason yep. is either really lazy. And just just hired the first guy he interviewed, or like, man, Jason really, really is perceptive. It just nailed it. He's like, "This is my guy. I can just tell 
But I, I oh. now I like this idea in my head that you were the first interview and Jason was just like, dude, I don't know. I just got to fill this spot. <laughs> I hope it wasn't Jason that. hates me now, by the way. <laughs> no, like, honestly, he, this is a cool, I'll tell you a little bit about his story. He was the director of the Whistler Ski School. Hmm. And at the same time, he was over there. He helped start the Whistler Mountain Bike Park. And he moved to Austria. <clears throat> um, he met an Austrian girl in Whistler. And turns out her family has connections at Atomic. Hmm. And he started as like a buckle engineer at Atomic and worked his way up to product manager and is now the business unit director of Ski Boots at Atomic. Wow. And when he got promoted from product manager to business unit director, he had in his mind he was looking for a boot fitter, someone from North America um, to come over to do the job. Hmm. And I don't know how many people he looked at in addition to me, but I know that um, when I came over for the interview, I was... I was given the job, like, there. Yeah. Okay. Um, the most surprising thing that you just said in all of that was, Jason was, what was his job? He was the buckles guy? Yeah, he That's started like out a as a position. buckle engineer. Well, a um, buckles <clears throat> engineer. That's a job. One person gets to be a buckles engineer. You know, I didn't really think about buckles too much until I got to Atomic and then... Yeah how incredibly important they are to how a boot looks, how a boot functions. Yep. It's a pretty serious part that you take for granted that yeah. when you do it wrong, it's not good. And, good, way um, to, good way to ruin a boot. You know, and he, well, I should say now, like we have, we have 10 people in our, our boot team at Atomic um, from liner engineers to plastics engineers to CAD people um, to database people. And we spend a lot of time in Italy, almost. Yeah. Uh, well, I should say every boot we, we make, it all starts in Italy. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of normal for the whole ski boot industry. Everything mm -hmm. starts in, in Montebelluna area, mm -hmm. uh, Asolo area of uh, northeastern uh, Italy. And we're there. Like, I'm there probably at least twice a month. And some of our guys are there every week. And whether it's molds or plastics or components, everything's coming out of Italy for the most part. And um, the buckles are a big part of that. That are, There's like three suppliers for almost all the entire ski boot industry in Italy. And mm -hmm. so you have to go down there and really get your specs right and yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, so it, it, it is somebody's kind of full-time gig to make sure uh, things like buckles and ski walk mechanisms and grip yeah. pads, those components that are coming out of Italy, um, one of my team members manages uh, from the R&D side of things. And that's mm -hmm. what uh, Jason um, first started out doing was mm -hmm. uh, in the buckle part of things. Yeah. So how many how many boots let's say for let's say current season right 17 18 mm -hmm. season do you know off the top of your head like how many uh what do we say distinct boots is atomic making both alpine oh, models. alpine yeah. and <clears throat> alpine touring everything yeah so there's i would say probably about a hundred models wow 
So if you think of like the new ultra extended 130, we call that a model. So yep. there's probably about a hundred models in the in the system right now. Between things you can see in the catalog and what are called SMUs, like special makeups mm-hmm. for like sometimes if a shop is big enough, like in Europe, Intersport is a, a huge customer of ours and they only deal with SMUs. Like they don't like the normal boots. They want to have their own special colorway or special something upgraded um so we make an out of catalog thing just for them so between what's in a normal catalog and all the out of catalog stuff um it's about a hundred models give or take a couple damn that's that puts into perspective why there's like a buckles guy yeah that's a lot of product yeah because when you look at it if you were to open up or go to the website you look at all the different colors all the different shapes of buckles it's a there's a lot there Yeah. So say a little bit more then about what your job looks like just on the day-to-day basis. You're, you're overseeing a hundred models of boots. Uh, You're talking about spending time in Italy. Tell me more about the day-to-day. Sure. So I think in general, uh, if you had to sum up my job in like a sentence, I manage the, the boot program from idea to finished product. So every little step in the way, um, I'm somehow more or less involved in. And so when we're talking about making the next new cool thing, there's we're sitting around hashing out ideas. We start there, and we'll eventually have a boot on the table. You know, um, about 21 to 24 months later. So that's kind of like the uh, the development cycle of a ski boot. It's really long, mm-hmm. and. I would say, depending what time of the year you catch me in, let's say right now, um, you, it's funny, you mentioned, let's, let's talk about 17, 18, and I'm like, oh, shit, I got to remember back two <laughs> yeah. years. Yeah. Uh, what did I do two years ago? <laughs> yep. So, like, right now, like, um, the 18, 19 range is done and dusted mm-hmm. for the most part, and we're super deep into 1920 hmm. with kind of an eye towards 2021, but that's still kind of fuzzy at this point. Hmm. Um, at this point right now, we're getting ready for trade show season. So making sure all the 18, 19 samples are super shiny and happy for everybody to drool over at the upcoming <laughs> events. And we're also getting our first injections out of the molds for 1920. So we can hmm. start getting on snow and do fit tests and flex tests. And one of my R and D guys, he has like, I think the sweetest job ever. His job is to break everything. It must be so rewarding just to go back there and smash shit. Like we have a really big pendulum hammer that just, you put the boot into like a, a binding type thing and the, the boot is uh, frozen at minus 20 Celsius and they just whack the shit out of it until it breaks. And they just write down, okay, yep, that broke then. <laughs> it's just, uh, I could just love doing that all day. I think that's, if I ever get bored of being a product manager, I'm going to take that, that job. <laughs> yeah. What's the title? What's the, what's his title? Like chief uh, He's quality breaker? manager. Yeah. yeah he's uh, quality manager. So. Okay. Um, aptly titled. Yeah. His so job ki- is to make sure it withstands everything we throw at it. So, so kids listening, you put it down now. You want to grow up and be a quality manager. Yeah, if you like breaking shit and you want to get paid yeah. for it, quality manager. You want to be a quality manager. Okay, so 
if I was to give you like six uh, factors or priorities, I want you to how you think your colleagues, you know, you and Tor and everybody else. How do you think there if do you think there would be a consensus in how you would rank these six things? The looks of a boot. Number one. Number two, how easy it is to get on or take off. The actual downhill performance of a boot. Warmth, comfort, and weight. Okay. I should have written this down. You have you to should remind have. me again. Well, gonna, and, and, and it's um, not so much about to get your clear one to six. I guess what I'm mm-hmm. curious about, if you're like, dude, uh, it, in our world, one and two are easily far and away you know, like these are the most important things in terms of the feedback we get from actual skiers around the world. Did that make okay. sense? Yeah, totally. Um, I, I always lead with this, and I think it's totally true that whether whether you, Jonathan, are talking to somebody from Head or Lang or Nordica or Solomon, I think every product manager in the boot world thinks about three things, and that is fit, comfort, and performance. And those are the three aspects that we spend every year at least a million euros on when we launch a new boot project, which is what it costs to launch a boot. It's about a a million, a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Um, So fit, comfort, and performance. And, you know, being a boot fitter and seeing when things don't fit, they don't sell, Mm -hmm. you know. The, the boot that the kid on the floor wants to go to and sell all day long is the one that's going to fit the best, not the one that they have to just beat into shape all the day. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> so for me, fit, no matter what type of skier you are, fit is the most important aspect of a ski boot. Now, different skiers will have different definitions of what fit means. Yep. Marcel Hirscher's idea of a good fit is very different from my mom's idea of a good fit. Mm -hmm. And so trying to kind of map this whole world of skiers into all the different fits that we make has been one of the challenges that I've tried to bring to Atomic and say, uh, we need to have like really good narrows, really good mediums, really good wides with a similar strategy behind it all. And I would say, most every brand would probably agree with me that those are the three main aspects of making a great ski boot. And each brand stands out with their unique solutions Mm -hmm. to answering those questions. Mm -hmm. And to to your point, like when we talk about comfort, that's part of it is the squishiness of the liner, but it's also how easy are the buckles to grab onto? Mm -hmm. How easy is the boot to get take? to put on and take off that kind of stuff is something we for sure stress a lot about sometimes less, sometimes more, you know, like our red star world cup 170. We don't really care how hard it is to put on. Yeah. But one of our Hawks 80 boots that we sell for 250 or something that has to be slam dunk to put on and take off. Yep. Yeah. And I think that stuff is just, I end up saying this a lot, I think, on the podcast. Like, I think I've said before, I'm glad I don't make skis. And I'm definitely glad I don't make ski boots. Um, because, like, personally, you know, here, here's you would, 
you, I might say, like an old bias of mine. I actually kind of have a thing for boots that are hard to put on because to me, that's an indication that it's probably actually going to fit well and like ski well. And, and I know that might be heresy or maybe it isn't anymore. I don't know. But you might be like, God, no, dude, that's like a way outdated old way of like, you know, you're, you're living 20 years in the past or something <laughs> if you think that's still true. But I mean, those are those are some of the trade-offs, right? I mean, well, yes and no. It's yes, I would say a, a 130 or stiffer is always going to be harder than a, a 70 or an 80 to put on. Mm-hmm. I don't think we'll ever get around that, at least not in the next five years. Um, but I will say the expectations between Europe and North America are vastly different on this subject. Say more. You know, you know, like I, you know, as a boot fitter in, in a ver- rather high end shop, I was like, you need to learn how to put on a one thirty. Uh huh. You, you just can't grab it and go. You, yeah. you have to open up this way and do this. Uh, but here in Europe, we get complaints that the one thirties are just too hard to put on, or they're leaving pressure marks on the shin after five minutes, you know? Hmm. And it's like, yeah, it's called a one thirty. <laughs> huh. It has our highest performance liner inside it. You know, it's a, uh, you know, the ski, the skiing culture in Europe is so, at least in Austria, I should say, um, it's like baseball in America. Everybody does it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's mass appeal over here. And, you really have to balance that out between super hardcore guys from Alta who want to see this aspect of their boot never change and the dealer in Austria who's going to sell 500 of those a week if it was easier to put on. Yep. You know, yep. and that's, that's for sure one of the balances I have to strike as a global product manager is making sure as best I can that everybody's happy. Yep. And that's really not easy. <laughs> <laughs> That's Especially when it comes when it comes to colors, this is the least fun <laughs> part of my job is to make a color that every country likes. Because we actually don't offer um, like a European catalog and a North American catalog anymore. Yeah, um, it's it's one range for the world. And what Japan thinks is cool versus Italy versus yeah, U.S. is can often be really different. And it's funny that you have to kind of generalize, like, by country, as if, like, I mean, which you do. Like, that's part of the job of you yeah. kind of do have to do that. And, and you would have some, uh, you would actually know, like, actually, dude, we can. <laughs> we can pretty actu- accurately break it down by, you know, sort of by nation. Um, so give me, this is a really, this is something I've not thought about at all before. So talk to me about, like, the two or three, when we're having this thing about, man, like I'm a dude and my job is to make something that, you know, Japan is going to like as much as Austria is going to like, as much as the U.S. is going to like those different markets. Um, so colors is one. Can is there? Give me a good generalization off of that. Like, I don't know. In Japan, they love, you know, yellow blue. ski boot. No, blue. <laughs> blue is the hottest color. And if you want to make... Any competitors listen to this and they don't even know it, now they will. But blue is just the jam over there. Japan so, loves which blue. Is, which is what? hard for us with a boot called Redster. Yeah, that's tough. Turning that blue <laughs> doesn't work. <laughs> what, uh, give me some... And by what the way, a- cool, cool side note, the country that sells the most World Cup race boots is Japan. 
it's not the US. Japan. Why is it? It's not the US. It's not Austria. True? Japan, in, in Japan, their culture is very focused on high end performance. And even though they don't produce a lot of racers, they <clears> have this type of scheme they call demo, like a demonstration. Uh huh. And if you know much about like anything that the Japanese culture or karate, for example, like yeah. you do a kata and you're you're showing off your skills, they translate that still to skiing. And they have this perfectly prepared piece, um, no gates, uh-huh. and the athletes are just trying to make the most perfect turns down this and they're judged based on it. Huh. And they use all World Cup stuff skis, boots, bindings, and this is what their culture aims towards is this type of, generally speaking, is this type of skiing. You know, you, we see all the crazy shots of like Chris Ben Chetler skiing, Japanese pow. Right. And they're just like, nope, I want to go over there yeah. and ski race skis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is fantastic. And on the international, you know, point scale, points to the Japanese for liking their World Cup race boots. Minus one to you, you know, you uh, you Europeans over there insisting on the, like, easy on-off 130s. That's how we're keeping score on the Blister podcast, international point-keeping system. <laughs> what a- and if any, if any boot fitters are also listening, if you ever fit... Japanese feet before they're not narrow typically they're usually the widest things you could ever see huh and to think that they sell boatloads of 92 millimeter boots you just shake your head and you're like how is this happening (laughs) it just boggles the mind so what are the generalizations for the for the u.s folk what what color do we like uh black we're into black (laughs) <laughs> I think everybody, when in doubt, just make it black so you can sell it to anything and it matches everybody's clothes. Okay. It's always the the easy way out. Okay. But it's hard. You know, like, you know, we say Japanese people love blue, but obviously that doesn't apply across the board. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And, and we say one color doesn't work for for the U.S. Well, it's like also kind of a big area, you know. Yep. <clears throat> um, but it's one of those things like it's just hard to to nail down are the colors and names are probably number two. It's it's so hard to come up with a cool name. Yeah. Yeah. What what's really difficult is um, all the trademark rights. Yeah. That are behind this and ski boots fall under the the trademark category twenty five, which is footwear. So if a flip flop company has mm-hmm. trademarked a name we want to use, we can't. You know, huh. or a cycling shoe or a running shoe. You know, there's just so many good names that are gone that you're like, oh man, I wish they would just say this as the name of the boot. You're like, well, we tried. <laughs> well, you know, here's a here's a free. I'm gonna give you a free uh, a free suggestion here. Okay. Um, I've never we we could circle in this back to philosophy. I mean, I've never heard of like the Wittgenstein. You know, or, 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 or the Schlegel, or this the, is the you know, Plato Pro model. Yeah, or the Rorty. Yeah, you could do a bunch of like the yeah, Rorty. The Rorty. Do a bunch of the, like. We have a book called the AJ, so that's kind of close. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Super so, nerd points. If anybody can tell who we're talking about there. 
anyway, so yeah, there's just a thought. You're welcome, Atomic. Uh, okay, we'll try yeah. that one. Yeah, the uh, the Diogenes Laertius model <laughs> in blue will be a big seller in Japan. They're gonna love it. <clears throat> so, well, so okay. It's funny that you are a guy who has been, uh, you know, I think spending a good bit of your time with Atomic talking about um, a couple uh, big boots at Atomic, the the Hawks Ultra and Hawks Ultra XTD boots. Um, the story there is weight, which you yeah. didn't quite talk about in your big three of, I mean, I know what you're going to do here, but in terms of fit, <laughs> comfort and performance, um, I mean, weight is, uh, I mean, in the AT world, um, of course, we've been looking to get lighter boots to, uh, to go uphill in, but with the Hawks ultra, right, this is a lightweight Alpine boot. Um, yeah. So talk to me a little bit about that and how that came <clears throat> sure. to be. So, um, obviously, when you talk about fit, comfort, performance, that can be parsed out yeah, and just uh, further sub-segments. And arguably, weight is in the performance category. You know, especially for touring skiers, you know, they consider a high-performance boot one that goes up, mm-hmm. especially here, um, super mm-hmm. well. So... Weight is in the performance category from a different definition of performance. And I would say when we were looking at making a lightweight ski boot, it was actually when we first started making Backland, mm-hmm. our first real touring boot. We had a boot called Waymaker Tour before that, which it was just trying to do too many things at once. It was trying to be an alpine boot. It was trying to be a high-end boot, a low-end boot, a touring boot, and it was just too many things. And so that was one of the turning points in our philosophy is like, you know, we're going to make a boot. It's got to be awesome at this, make it do one thing super well. And when we said, okay, we're going to go into touring, um, looking at making a lightweight touring boot. Um, we were all super surprised at how well the first injections of backland skied. Hmm. And this is when the boot like weighed, you know, about a kilo in size 27. And we were like, wow, if we, if this boot skis that well, if we reinforced zones here, there, and did this and that, we could have a super kick-ass Alpine boot. Hmm. And nobody had been making light Alpine boots yet. Yep. And, you know, I'm a huge mountain biker. And if it's not light, it's not going to be awesome, you know. You look at tennis rackets, you look at running shoes, road bikes, mountain bikes, almost everything super high end is also getting lighter at the same time. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, um, the ski boot world was just kind of stagnant. And at least in the four buckle overlap world, things hadn't really changed a whole lot. There'd be things they could talk about it. Our boot does this, our boot does that, but it's still a boot that's two and a half kilos per, per foot. It fits well, but it hasn't really moved the needle anywhere. And <clears throat> to answer your question of, you know, weight is important, but fit and comfort and downhill performance are going to come first <clears throat> still. Mm-hmm. That was one of the, the key aspects of making sure Hawks Ultra delivered. And lightweight, you know, we knew we could make it lighter. Backland weighs a kilo. you know. Yeah. We, but when you go below a certain weight, 
you're going to you're going to miss that fit. You're going to miss that downhill skiing performance, that progressive flex that's super important to have. Um or some other some key aspect, you know, cuz while we wanted to be 25% lighter than a normal ski boot, we knew we still if we're going to print 130 on the side of it, it had to be legitimately close to everything else that had a 130 next to it. Mm-hmm. And it had to fit better than all the competitors at the same time. So we can't really go crazy light with the liner. We need to have certain foams that have some weight associated to them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we really had to strike a balance on Ultra to figure out, okay, where can we save weight? Where can we not save weight? And it took, you know, a, I would say 21 months to really figure to deliver on that, 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 uh, that promise. Hmm. So when you bring up, <clears throat> you're a good person to ask this question too. Um, when you bring up that question of, you know, you, you just said, I believe, you know, by, if you start dropping it too light, you're going to lose some of that progressive flex. Do you, are you really saying like that? Yeah. If you want a progressive flex in a boot, you have to have weight. You know, are you doing, you have to have, you have to have wall thickness in certain spots. And I'll be the first to admit that backland is an awesome boot, but it's not, it doesn't flex like a redster, you know, like there's, there's just not enough meat to it to, to deliver that. Um, one of the things that, uh, we realized is that when you go really thin with the wall thickness, you have to up the stiffness of the plastic to get anywhere near what you think a 130 is. Mm-hmm. So if you look at Redster, on the other hand, Redster is so thick that if you put in, this is not how it works, but it's kind of like a good metaphor. If you put in 100 flex material into a Redster, it feels like a 130 because you have so much wall thickness there. Say, sorry, say that again. So, if you plastic, yeah, if you grabbed, let's say you have a bin of plastic, you have a, a, a yep. jar full of 100 flex plastic, a jar full of 130, and a jar full of 150 right here. Redster, any World Cup boot, is really thick. Yeah. And a lot of the stiffness just comes from that foundation, that thickness, what we call wall thickness in the boot. And this will lead up to a, a larger discussion of flex indexes. I can already see it coming. Um, <laughs> uh, if you put that normal jar labeled 100 into the Redster molds, you're going to get a boot that feels like 130 when it comes out because it's just so thick. Conversely, if you take you look at Backland, which is really thin, and you take that same jar of 100 and put that in the mold, it's going to feel like a 70. Just because you don't have the the structural stability in that shell. And so that's kind of the game you play with a boot like Ultra, or especially Ultra Extended. Um, You really have to know where to put that thickness in order to get the stability, in order to get the perfect progressive flex curve that you're trying to hit. Um, Because if you go too thin you have to use such a stiff material that you kind of, you lose the feel to the boot. It'll start to feel either tinny or like wood. Yep. You know, and striking that balance is 
was one of the really hard things to figure out uh, with Ultra. Um, that that mold series went through a bunch of iterations in its prototype phase, where we had okay, we have to add wall thickness. We have to add. Literally, my guys are just so good at this. They're like, we need to add zero point two mil here, zero point five mil over here. We can actually make that spot thinner, but if we move it from there over to here, um, to really figure out where the stability and progressiveness and lightweight still could come from. And so it isn't as simple as saying, like when we're talking about wall thickness, we're not just talking about say the, the thickness at the top of the shoe, right? If we want to talk about the, you know, the boot being kind of two parts, like the cuff and then the clog or the shoe, it's more complicated than just like, dude, if you want a progressive flex, you've got to keep some thickness at the upper part of that clog or shoe, whatever we want to call it. Yeah. Um, if I just stick to my language, just so I don't get confused. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. We said that we have the, the cuff yeah. and then the shell, the lower shell, lower shell. Um, we can call it clog as well. Um, but, uh, in the shell, yeah, there's, if you were just to demount the cuff, take the liner out yep. and you just look, you can actually see how thick the plastic is. If you had calipers and stuff like that, um, you would see where it's really thin, like two mil at some of the overlap spots, you know, two and a half mil. And then it gets up to on ultra right around seven kind of thing at the thickest spot. Mm -hmm. But most of it's around three, three and a half. Hmm. And that's kind of, uh, the best blend that we found so far mm -hmm. with also the, with the materials that exist from the plastic suppliers. Um, that's the other, uh, <laughs> nut to crack, hmm. um, to figure out what plastics you're going to be using. Cause there's not just one, <laughs> Yeah, there's a bunch and you will create a mold for whatever boot you're trying to make. And you got to figure out what plastics work best in that mold. And it's not super easy. So sometimes you have to use really expensive uh, polyamids, uh, like Gorillamid, for example. One of the most expensive plastics you can get your hands on. That's the only plastic that will inject and fill the mold cavity is this super expensive plastic. So you're like, okay, we're going to make this lightweight boot, but we're limited to these really high-end plastics. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we can't bring it down to this certain price point, unfortunately. It's only going to live here. Um, <clears throat> so we're we're not at the point yet where you can make cheap plastics in these lightweight constructions. They just don't inject. They just don't fill the mold cavity. Hmm. And that'll be, in my opinion, probably the next breakthrough in, in ski boots is bringing this lightweight stuff down um, to lower price points while still maintaining, you know, progressive flex, a good fit, durability. You know, it's got to survive all those hammer impacts that, uh, my guys love to do to the boots because <laughs> yeah. um, when things get thinner, things can get brittle at yeah. the same time. So this is a, a really uh, uh, important thing to keep your eye on. Yeah. Interesting. I'm going to ask the annoying question. Uh, Great. Not, well, <laughs> not, I, I'm not actually going to yet ask the annoying question of, of uh, flex index stuff. 
Um, man, I feel like that's we should just do that conversation some other sure. time. Um, okay. <laughs> but the annoying question of gun to your head, right? You have to answer true or false, and if you're wrong, you die. World no Cup ra- world no pressure. World Cup race boots. How do I, I want to put this? World Cup race boots are not going to be lighter in say ten years than they are today. True or false? True. My gut gut reaction right now is World Cup is going to be heavy stuff typically. Yeah. Um, the forces that these guys are, and girls are just skiing at is just so ridiculously mind blowing what they put these boots through. Um, and skis, you know, you've got skis that just weigh like a boat anchor and a 20 din binding is also not getting any lighter. Yeah. So to have a super light boot at the connection of these two heavy things just kind of throws the whole thing off balance. I think, mm-hmm. um, Got reaction, gun to head. Yeah, kind yeah. Of thing. <clears throat> well, I think um, that's I think that's the right answer. And you know, we do like I I end up spending a lot of time talking about this weight issue, right? And the reason why is only because weight has a clear impact on performance. And weight like and so we we talk about this kind of on and on, but just as we are seeing and as we are reviewing and like my ski days are getting spent, like if I'm skiing a hundred days a year or whatever, many more of those days are getting spent skiing, you know, lighter bindings, lighter boots, lighter skis. And there's a part of me that's like, wait a second, I don't necessarily want everything to be lighter right? Mm-hmm. There's still room to exist in these different categories. And it strikes me that, and so when you say like, yeah, at the, at the full on race level, where the only thing we care about, we don't care if the boot is easy to put on or take off. We don't care what color the boot is. We just need like this super high end aggressive performance. We're keeping the weight. And it, and it sounds like then what you're trying to do is like, well, cool. Are you currently Jonathan in the Olympics? No. Cool. How about we like talk about a then blend of a lighter boot that's still high performance, um, that isn't a pain in the ass to put on or take off. Right. I mean, you're, you are, you are dealing in that commercial world of making Mm trade-offs. And I think, you know, you know, World Cup is one thing. I think it will mm-hmm. always be this super pinnacle of, you know, Formula One for us kind of thing, or one of the pinnacles. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and it might get lighter. Um, these, these, the, the, working with racers in Vermont, mm-hmm. I thought they were picky. <laughs> Man, you have not seen picky until you meet Marcel. <laughs> That dude is so dialed on hmm. every nuance that he can feel claims to feel different colors affecting the plastic, you know? Wow. And, and when he, he times it and he's right. So you're going to, are you going to say, no, you're not right. <laughs> you know, yeah. like there's no way I could feel anything that these racers feel Like they're yeah. just so well tuned into their gear that you tweak something and they're like, I remember when we were testing Redster, uh, we called Redster 2, the new, the, the current Redster boot on the market. Um, we didn't tell Marcel, like, we changed something. Huh. And 
he he was testing and he skied down and he pulled off the course and he's like what's different about this boot what'd you change hmm. and we're like oops <laughs> busted <laughs> but it, it's it's you know part of it is you know that when you know you're being observed it kind of affects the experiment kind of thing so mm-hmm. it wasn't just evil on our part not to tell him we mm-hmm. wanted to really know if he felt this change and yeah these guys do and if you make the ski lighter in the tip they'll tell you like they'll just they're, they're just so they want it in an exact way yeah. and they want it so fine-tuned that yeah i mean now I'll, I'll qualify that a little bit because in the race on skis especially we had double decks a couple years ago which were pretty heavy and now we have this new technology it's in GS called ServoTech, which is a lot lighter. So the GS skis actually got about a kilo lighter. Wow. Yeah. So they're still heavy. They're still super heavy skis, mm-hmm. but they did come down in weight. It would still be the heaviest ski like in our catalog kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so there's this, there is a bandwidth, you know, and um, one of the things I liken it to is I... I used to race downhill mountain biking and I still downhill quite a bit. There needs to be a certain weight to it to, to feel good. You know, like if I had like a, a 15 pound downhill bike, it might feel cool, but I think I would lose something on the the actual track. You know, like it, it wouldn't track right. It would probably bounce around a whole lot. So there is this balance of weight, stability, damping, all that good stuff. Yeah. And I think you you will see things get lighter from us. You're going to see some really cool new skis come out, um, like in the all-mountain world, that are lighter. But we didn't sacrifice the damping, the stability, you know, that kind of stuff. We're taking – a lot of us at Atomic are huge mountain bike nerds. And if if you can make it lighter, but it still performs how you want it to perform – that's a good cool. target. Yep. You know, <clears throat> and we will always nerd out on that. When it comes to downhill skis, it still has to deliver like a downhill ski. Yeah. And there's going to be a, a really cool ski that if you ever get Darren Ralph's talking about it, he just won't shut up <laughs> coming out. And I, I share the same opinion as him on this new, new ski hmm. that it's lighter, but dude, it just rips. Huh. And when I ski the heavier version of it, I'm like, the heavier version's just heavier. Like, that's all it is. And I'm like, well, my downhill bike, like I had, I had an aluminum downhill bike a couple years ago, and I have a carbon fiber one, mm-hmm. and it's lighter, but I gained some benefits out of how they made it, you know. Yep. And weight needs to be a factor, but it it needs to be secondary or tertiary to like those things we talked about, like damping and edge hold and stability. Yeah. And I think if you can engineer something that strikes that balance, you're going to do something pretty cool. And that's what we're doing on the boot side and ski side at Atomic. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And for sure it needs to be category appropriate. You know, if we handed this same lightweight ski to Marcel, and said, go have fun, he would just throw it back in your face, you know? Yeah. And conversely, if you handed a super heavy ski to our touring athletes, they're going to go, what? I don't need this, you know? 
<clears throat> so we're really trying to focus on making the right thing for the right skier. Yeah. As best we can. Yeah. Um, you want to talk XTD? Sure. Um, so we just, we are spending more time in these boots and, and we, I think the last thing we published on the Hawks Ultra XTD 120 actually was looking at kind of the XTD 120 versus the Hawks Ultra Alpine boot, right? That we've been talking about here. Um, uh -huh. So we, and you guys made, I, I just would like to hear you talk about a couple of the decisions here, right? Like you, you had a one, an XTD 120 versus an XTD 130. I believe the shell weight of the 130 is it's a lighter weight than the shell of the 120. That should be identical. Should be identical. Okay. Yeah. So then it's just the liner, the and liner the different. And okay, and the cuff. All right. So yeah. that's what I was trying to get at. So you guys <clears throat> and by the way, you decided to go lighter like you didn't just put a walk mode on the Hawks Ultra. Correct. It's a whole different mold series. Yeah. Um, we wanted to keep the geometry, the fit, the stance, everything that was awesome about Ultra. But then, again, no compromise. We made a whole new mold series um, for the extended. And, yes, we didn't start from the ground up. We used Ultra as the basis, but we, mm -hmm. we couldn't just slap on a, a ski walk mechanism and toss in some tech inserts and call it good. We really wanted to make sure we got the stand height as low as possible. It's the lowest stand height we've ever made in a ski boot. Hmm. Um, while keeping the core geometry that Hawks is known for and the fit that Hawks is known for with also obviously all the backland coolness mm -hmm. for touring at the same time. Hmm. That's, the, the, that's the pitch right there. Okay. So, <clears throat> I mean, one of the things we've been kind of talking about though is – you know, like for some people, if, if you just, I mean, the more you care about uphill and the more you really are worried about just the weight of a boot, I mean, that XTD 130 is pretty remarkable, right? But I'm one of those people who is also like, well, maybe I would, you know, maybe I personally would go with a heavier liner that is going to maybe give it a bit more of a plush ride on the down. Yep. And I guess like, man, you're the guy and you and your team have to figure out like, again, who is our target audience? I mean, you could, you could have easily stuck whatever fucking liner you wanted in that thing, Yep. you know? And so how you make those calls. And it seems like that would have had to have been, I could imagine a lot of hand wringing mm -hmm. when it came to the liner <clears throat> shell combos on these, ultra XTD 120s and 130s. Yeah. This was this was not a quick decision, honestly. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of talks with athletes. You know, Sage has been super influential in this boot, as well as Darren mm -hmm. and Chris, um, as well as local ambassadors around the Alta area or Vermont, and especially here in Europe, too. You know, mm -hmm. there's a huge free ride crowd in, in Chamonix and in Western Austria and Switzerland. Um so just trying to get all the data we can to make yeah. what we hope is the best decision at the end of the day. And for me, I, I think like the 130 is kind of like, to use another 
a bike metaphor, like an S-Works version. It just needs uh-huh. to be as best as we can make a ski boot. And for sure there's going to be, like you said, a little bit of compromise of, of something is going to have to give, but I, I wanted to make the 130 tour awesome to like mm-hmm. just blow the doors off of the, the 130 free ride touring market. But at the same time, fit better than any other of these lightweight options from our competitors. And we know, in my opinion, it's never perfect. And it always gives me something to kind of look forward to in the next iteration, like the next year uh, when we update it, you know, how do we improve it? I think there's always going to be something we can do better. And if if I think the extended 130 is our first kick at the can with that, you know, um, we're gathering all the feedback we can. I, I read every forum that's possible. Yeah. Um, talking to people like you, talking to people who pay for the boot. You know, while yeah. our athletes give great feedback, I also want to talk to people who spent their hard-earned cash on the boot. Yeah. You know, because they're the people that are really going to be pissed if it doesn't work the way they want it to. So when we made the 130, to get back to your question, um, to me it was like, the pinnacle of boots at that time. Like how light can I make this? That it still fits super well, that it still skis really well. Um, no holds bars kind of thing. And we're also putting it at a price point where we can use more expensive materials, use more expensive liner materials to achieve that. And we also heard from people that, you know, a lot of people buy some of these boots that maybe don't go touring at all. Yep. You know, that's just a reality of it. Like, yep. I remember selling tons of Marker Duke bindings with no skins ever. Yep. You know, it's just they want the SUV type versatility, at least in their head, of, of yep. gear that can do anything. And so knowing that there's going to be a lot of people skiing mostly resorts with this boot, that's kind of where the 120 kind of came about. Mm-hmm. was that the 130 is going to be no hold bars, just try to make the best boot possible. And the 120 is a lot of that DNA, but a little more resort focused. Yep. It's hard too. Cause dude, there's, it's not like, there's not a right answer, right? No, it's, that's the it's hardest like, thing. It's like, if, what if I just <laughs> like, if I put in that lighter weight liner, the 130, there's going to be dudes that are like, dude, like, hell I don't yeah. care about the weight. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're right. like, or they're like, hell yeah. Awesome. Yeah. 1400 gram boot killer. At the and same time, the, this guy's <laughs> like, I don't give a shit. Yep. You know? So there's no, I want right. to toss in my zip fit liner that weighs as much as the whole boot. Yep. And you're like, ah, I can't make both of you happy. Yep. And I know someone's going to say, well, just offer the 130 in two flavors. Um, it's an option, but it's not the easiest thing on the on the business side to do. Yeah, yeah. I think that XTD one thirty is a crazy good touring boot. I just think because of how I tour and where I tour and the length of my tours, I could accept a heavier liner in there. Mm-hmm. And um, and again, it's not because you guys got the boot wrong. It's that there's not a wrong. It's, there's not a right answer here. And it's like my the heavier liner I liked, 
you, your audience, it's like, cool, we just made more people unhappy, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, if we go to some, you know, some utilitarianism arguments here, like the greatest, right. <laughs> the, the, exactly. the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people, it's like, how the hell do you, would you do that in the boot world? And it kind of actually seems like that's your job to try to figure that out. That's a, a pretty easy summary right there. Yeah. yeah like that's, yikes. It's really fun. But it's really not easy to strike that, hit that bullseye, you know, because yeah. no matter what you do, someone's going to want something different. Yeah. And the only thing I can do in my job is just learn from it. So we make the extended 130 and the 120 and the 100 and so on. And how can we just keep progressing that boot? How can we mm -hmm. keep making that the boot that everybody wants to be in? And that's what's in the back of my mind that I, I can't exactly say right now, but uh, those wheels are spinning, those prototypes are being made, those things are being tested on snow right now, and uh, we, won't, uh, we won't be asleep at the wheel, I'll put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, dude, we should, um, I should probably let you go, um, and <clears throat> we'll have to do this again sometime, because it would, sure. it would be fun, um, I would actually really like to to nerd out about liners more, and we uh -huh. we, we could ask the whole uh, the flex index question, um, and uh, we've got some other things to do. But um, I guess to come full circle, before I let you go, talking about you know this background in philosophy, and and you've I think said pretty well why you think or how and how you think that has been kind of instrumental on what you do now in the day to day are what do you find yourself reading these days um do you have or do you have time to read um if you do have time are you still going back to some of this philosophy stuff or are you on to other things now yeah i'm really bad at finding new things to read hmm. I'll, I'll say that um i don't have a, a ton of time to read um but when i do i this is going to be really nerdy I love cracking open some Aristotle. It's just so good. <laughs> um, but I, I do. I don't. I don't keep up with the the studying aspect of it. It's, it's philosophy is one of those things like math. If you just don't do it enough, you kind of lose the equations and you lose what's going on. Um, but man, there's there's just so many fun things to just reopen that I do. Kind of, I tend to go back to things versus find new things to read. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll yeah. Say that favorite favorite Aristotle book yeah. or work he did. Yeah, uh, Nick McKeon Ethics, yeah. hands down. Okay, that nice. thing is a gold mine of just awesomeness. If anybody mm -hmm. just wants to read about what happiness could be and how to achieve being a good person, like that is a a pretty solid attempt at it. I think. Well, Matt, we will um, let you get back to your evening in Austria, uh, sitting back uh, with some brandy, reading the Nicomachean Ethics. Uh, <laughs> as, as I now, at least in my head, that's just what you do every night. That's uh, what I'm, so, everybody's going to think that now. Yeah, yeah that's perfect. <laughs> it's exactly how I wanted to end this. Uh, but man, I appreciate the time. This has been fun. And um, it's... Uh, 
it's a pretty interesting story and trajectory, um, kind of where you started and, and where you are now. So um, uh, thanks, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. yeah, no problem. I mean, honestly, if you get me going on this, we could talk forever. So there's plenty of things <clears throat> that we didn't even discuss, like, uh, but we can definitely do that in part two, I think. It'd be pretty fun. Yeah, <clears throat> we will. We have a few things to come back to, so I look forward to that. And uh, good luck with all of it. Um, say hi to your your quality manager, smashing stuff for me, <laughs> and uh, give a high five to the buckles guy because I like the for buckles sure. guy now. I don't know. Sometime down the road, maybe I can bring a sledgehammer over to Austria, and and uh, the your your quality manager will will let me smash some things. You don't need to. We have a gigantic pendulum hammer here. <laughs> Like it's, I think it's like 20 kilo or something that, yeah, anyway. Okay. They, they probably wouldn't really like me bringing the sledgehammer on the airplane anyway. So probably, it's probably not. Better. Yeah. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll supply the hammer and okay. the frozen boots. Okay. And uh, we'll just break stuff. Cool, cool. Hey, man, thanks again. And uh, yeah, uh, all the best going forward. Uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And I uh, look forward to round two. Cool. Thanks, Matt. You got it. Cheers. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Matt Manzer for the conversation. And again, you can find Matt on Instagram at one nerdy kid. Thanks also, as always, to our strikingly handsome audio engineer, Justin Bob. And we will talk to you next week. Take care. <laughs>